All right, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Probably a lot of us are full from all the food that we ate, um, and I'm sure many of us got to have a great time spent with family and friends. I'm sure a lot of you did some Black Friday shopping and um, enjoyed having no school and sadly back to reality, right? Um, this morning, we're going to return to the book of First Kings, and as Greg was praying about just what we have to be thankful for, um, I don't think this is necessarily an easy passage for us to read, but I do think it's very important. And that's kind of a theme that we've seen in the book of First Kings. Um, it started off with um, kind of like so much of what uh, God had been doing to give his people a place of uh, just safety and even building the temple and a place to worship God, a time of, of prosperity and a time of good things. And we've been saying for a while, it's getting pretty bad, right? And we're about to meet some characters that um, are, you could say, are among the, maybe the, the, um, the most infamous in the Bible. Um, I remember uh, back when I was in high school, um, this is something that all of you young people will not understand at all, sadly enough. I remember being in high school, we used to go to the Christian bookstore that was over here on Meridian and uh, Blossom Hill. It was called Berean, it changed its name to Lifeway, and we would go there to buy uh, like Christian CDs of the musicians we liked. All of you in the back are like, what are CDs? And I get it. Um, but it was a great it was a great place for us to go and see like all of the different Christian books and listen to music that we heard at church or other Christian artists that we enjoyed. Um, and so when we were hanging out in that store, we came across the strangest book I've ever seen in a Christian bookstore. And the book was called Bad Girls of the Bible. And basically they took all of like the infamous characters, the ones who are like you know, famous for like being evil or like not being someone you would want to like, you know, follow like their life patterns. And they had turned it into a book. To this day, I still don't really know what the purpose of the book was. Um, but amongst the most evil in the book, as we were flipping through it, was a character named Jezebel. And while we're not going to totally look at like the life of Jezebel in today's passage, the two new characters that we're being introduced to are Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab was one of the most uh, wicked kings. We're going to see that's exactly what the text says. But when we were looking through this book, we realized, and this is important now that, you know, our, our English congregation is starting to expect a few more babies and in the times to come, we realized you should never name your daughter Jezebel. That would be a really bad idea. Like if she was famous for being the most evil like queen and like I... I don't think anyone has actually like named their daughter Jezebel, or if they did, I, I would worry about what her childhood would look like or what it, how it would be. But what's interesting is the name Ahab that we're going to see as the most evil king at this time. The name Ahab is famous if you've read the old uh, Herman Melville novel, Moby Dick. And Captain Ahab is, if you don't know the story, I don't know. Do you guys still have to read Moby Dick in the back? Is that a thing? No, you guys are on to other books now. Okay. So it's a story of this sea captain who was hunting for this whale and like had his leg like, like, like taken off by this whale. So he goes out to get revenge. But it's really fascinating that the author named the character in the story Ahab 
Because if you knew anything about the Bible, it's kind of the same thing as if you were to name your daughter Jezebel. It's like these are names that you would not want to like give to someone because of what they're famous for. And we're going to get introduced to these two new characters today in our passage. And so um, really this passage, what we're going to see, I think it's a warning against evil for us. And it may not be the most comfortable, but I assure you, These few verses that we're going to read are very important. There's a lot we can learn from how we want to be warned against evil in our lives, but we also want to see how God is faithful, even in the presence of so much evil. Um, Two weeks ago, the last time we were in 1 Kings, Daniel showed us a formula for chapters 15 and 16 that's probably up on the screen right now. And we quickly went through a section in chapters 15 and 16 where there are six kings, all of whom are evil kings. And then there was one king, King Azza, who stood out because of how different he was in how he worshiped God. But here's the formula that we saw, right? In the blank year of king and fill in the blank so the king's name would be there, King blank began to rule in Judah or Israel. And he did what was, and that next blank would either be filled in with evil or good. And you see this in all the kings in, verses, in chapters 15 and 16. There's multiple evil kings, and then there's the one good king, King Azza, who we talked about last time. And then it says that some explanation of what they did. Now for today, even though we've been in 1 Kings and we've been reading big chunks at a time because it's a story, because it's historical narrative, today we're only going to focus on a few verses, and it's the most evil of all the kings in this section. And we may not understand all of the kind of context that we see about the the kings at this time, but hopefully by slowing down and just looking at a few verses and seeing just how detrimental the presence of King Ahab was as he ruled over the people of God during this time, hopefully there are warnings for us about the evil that we see in our world, how we can learn from from the sins and the mistakes of people in the past, but also to see what God is doing. And so um, one, one thing we've talked about in the book of Kings, we saw Solomon described as the wisest man who ever lived, but we saw how over time there were things that captured his attention that took his eyes and his worship off of God, and it showed how he slowly drifted away, leading Israel into this place where they're at now, where there is so much evilness that's been going on from generation to generation of the different kings. And so really, I think this passage helps us with the idea of thinking like, you know, none of us are named Jezebel, and thank God, none of us are named Ahab. Don't ever name your kids that, like that would be terrible. But we might look at these characters and we might think, wow, they were really the worst in the Bible. Thank God I'm nothing like them. And I think that's true, but hopefully we can see, are there subtle ways that the, from the way that King Ahab operated that we want to pay attention to in our lives so that we are not in danger of drifting away the way that King Solomon did and so that we can experience all of the blessings that God has for us. So we're going to read our passage today. Um, I'm excited to do that because when we've been reading the big chunks, sometimes we don't, we're not able to read every word and every verse. Um, but if you're following along in your Bibles, we're in 1 Kings 16, and we're going to read the last six verses of the chapter, starting in verse 29. And so it says this, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. 
And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is God's word. Let's pray. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that there are um, ways where, uh, though these events took place many, many years ago, that the truth is still so important for our lives and that you want to guide us in a, ways, in a way where we are not swayed by the evil that we see in the world, but God, how we can also be alert and be attentive to ways, God, that we don't want to drift into the evilness that we see um, that uh, just really um, can take a hold of our world in so many ways. And so, God, I thank you for the wisdom that you've had for us, not just this morning, but as we've been studying this uh, just really interesting book of Kings. And Lord, I pray that the truths that we see here, though they happened many years ago, can be, still be of such great value to us today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be opening our hearts to receive what you would have to say to us from your word. We thank you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see three encouragements in this passage for us to be warned against evil. Um, and really, there's either a character or a, um, or a single object that kind of encapsulate each one of these three. So first, we're going to want to uh, think about what it means to be aware of our influences. And we see this as Ahab takes Jezebel for his wife. And we'll talk about what that looks like as we get into it. Um, secondly, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to get rid of ungodliness. And you can really see this in the presence of the altars that were present that Ahab built and why this was so detrimental for uh, just the people that he was ruling over at this time. And finally, we want to see what it means to believe in God's warnings and specifically what that means, things that had happened before and things that had been said before. And that's really going to revolve around the city of Jericho, which is famous for the, the children's story that has the song, right? Joshua felt the battle of Jericho and the walls came crumbling down, right? Like they just walked around the city seven times in obedience to God. They didn't have to shoot any arrows. They didn't have to like tear down the walls, but the walls just came crumbling down. It's a really fascinating part of Israel's history. And it pops up again here as a huge warning, I think, to the people who um, are living under the reign of King Ahab. And so we're going to see these three different encouragements. And finally, hopefully that will help us see what God's purpose is for Israel at this time and how God is still present in the, in the face of evil. So first, we want to see what this passage means about being aware of our influences. And so um, just to kind of set the stage and get the context, uh, the last of the kings that we looked at last week, even though it was very brief, um, or two weeks ago, King Omri, even though there were bad kings, King Omri had been the worst. That's what, uh, that's what the previous section had said. And now when we get to Ahab in verse uh, 30, it says that he did more than all who were before him. And so in a period of evilness, 
Ahab is like the low point now of continuing this spiral of evilness that's going on in Israel. And usually if things are like going bad in a society, if there's one bad king and then another one and another one, you would hope at some point someone would learn from the mistakes and from the, the problems that existed. But now we're at a point where Ahab has done more evil than any of the other kings combined. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what that evil looks like in just a moment. And so um, in verse 31, it talks about how he took his wife Jezebel um, to be his wife. Now Jezebel uh, came from uh, Sidon. She was the queen of the Sidonians. And so um, we don't really know for us if like, you know, our normal day to day is looking at social media or reading the news. It's like we don't know the Old Testament history. But Sidon was a part of it was heavily influenced by the people of Canaan and the Canaanites had been at war or at odds with God's people from all the way back in Genesis. This was a conflict that had gone on over and over and over again. And there were two things that really described the Canaanites throughout the entire Old Testament. One, they were incredibly violent, and so they would always be attacking not just not just the people of Israel, but people around them. And they were known as a very violent people, um, but they were also known to have what were called Asherah poles. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But these were, these were altars to their God, um, who was obviously very different than the God of the people of Israel. And so for Jezebel, also, if she's the queen, she comes from a place of great status. And with that, she immediately influences King Ahab to build altars to her gods. Not just God singular, but gods plural. Which already, I was thinking about that this week. I was like, probably the easiest way to weaken the concept of God is to have a whole bunch of them and build altars to all of them. It's like, I think we, you know, we're trying to do our best as Christians to like follow after God's word and get to know the one true God. But when there's so many with like all these different images and all these different uh, like sacrifices and, and ceremonies that come with it, it just gets really confusing. But that's the first thing that happens when Ahab takes Jezebel as his wife. And she has her own gods that she believes in. And so he has to build altars to the god of Baal. Um, and this was, uh, this was probably not the first thing you want to be doing if you're ruling over God's people. But remember, Ahab was at the end of a long line of kings who were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And sadly, this had been far too common um, in Israel's history. And so um, what, this, what this speaks of is something we've seen throughout the Old Testament. That isn't, it's not an easy concept for us to grasp, I think, at, at face value, but it is very important. But from the time all the way back in Genesis, as God's people kind of began and went through like the, the Exodus and everything, there was always this encouragement to marry within the people of Israel. And I think the reason why that's hard for us today is because sometimes we focus on the ethnic part of it and see, like, you know, that sounds very closed-minded here in 2021. If, like, you, you're two pastors, like, both of our parents are in mixed marriages, which is, ethnically, it's very different. But the whole point of the intermarriage importance in the Old Testament, it's not that, like, it's not that the, eth like, one ethnicity is trying to be excluded, or that God is somehow racist. The importance is the influence that comes with it. Now, for many of you in this room, your parents have the expectation that you will marry someone Chinese if you're not married yet, right? I see people nodding. It's there, right? Now, um, 
And what I would say is, you might think, oh my gosh, like maybe some of you are like, like that's perfect. I want to marry someone Chinese. Or maybe some of you are like, I don't want my parents to dictate like what ethnicity my future husband or wife is going to be of, right? But the but if you think about the reasons behind why your parents might have that preference for you, it shows that when there are two different like ideologies that clash, it can make things very difficult. And that's even more true when it comes to the people of God, especially in the light of all the foreign nations being heavily influenced by the Canaanites, worshiping other gods, and being incredibly violent. This was the heart behind why God wanted his people to marry within the people of God. It was a very important thing. And I would say for many of us, it's like, we might think, no, like, that's not how I think I'm open-minded. It's 2021. But everyone has their list of things they're looking for. And what, we, what I'm sure we would consider deeply if we were thinking about marriage, some of you middle schoolers in the back are like, what are you talking about right now? But like the importance of the person that you would want to spend the rest of your life with being aligned with what you stand for and what is important in your life is incredibly important. And that's kind of the heart behind why your parents might have the expectation that you want to marry someone Chinese. In many ways, it's a lot easier. Now, what I would say as the son of, as someone who is half Asian, the most important thing that we can understand as the people of God is that you would be with someone who understands and supports your own faith and what's important to you. Because if you don't, it just gets insanely hard to make things work. And when God's people began to intermarry in the Old Testament, you could see all of the problems that were happening. And this, and Ahab being the worst in a long line of kings is certainly no exception at this point. And so what, this is the first thing that we see. Ahab is influenced by just the, 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 the different ideals that come with marrying Jezebel because she was from a different place and a different culture. Now, how was he influenced? That's going to show up in our second point this morning, which is I really think when we read what Ahab does next, hopefully there is a sense of us understanding what does it look like to get rid of ungodliness, the ungodliness that was kind of brought into Ahab's life. Now, it's not to say he was perfect before that because certainly he was far from it. But the effects of just his marriage with Jezebel and coming from, this, uh, coming from a very different ideology start to affect what happens next. And so that's our second point for this morning. We want to be encouraged to get rid of ungodliness. Um, first, we want to be aware of the influences in our lives. But what that looks like specifically shows up a little bit more, I think, in the next couple of verses. And so um, how was Ahab influenced by his marriage to Jezebel? And we see this starting in verse 32. He builds an altar for Baal. And he also made an Asherah. Now, let's break these things down a little bit if we're not quite sure what these words are talking about. But immediately he builds a house for one of Jezebel's gods, the god of Baal. Um, And so previously, the one thing that had set King Asa apart as the one good king in chapters 15 and 16, the one thing, if you remember that formula that we looked at, it was that he got rid of all of the altars to foreign gods. And he was the only one who had done that out of all the kings in this generation. And you could see that God blessed Israel as a result of this. 
And so after Asa goes to great lengths to get rid of all the altars, all of these images that would lead people away from the worship of the one true God and worshiping these foreign gods that were being introduced to them because of the, the authority of Ahab and Jezebel, now there are all these altars to foreign gods reappearing. And then secondly, we see that he makes an Asherah. This shows up a lot in the Old Testament. If you know your Old Testament, you know what you might know what an Asherah pole is, but I don't want to assume that we all know because this was many, many years ago. But an Asherah pole was a tall like tree or a giant pole um, that was kind of like an altar to the Canaanite goddess Asherah. And so now we don't only have the, these altars that Ahab has built to Baal, but now there's also Asherah poles. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you see time and time again, as God's people turn away, and build altars to other gods, and raise up Asherah poles, when God's people try to bring everyone back into true worship of God, tearing down the altars, and cutting down the Asherah poles has been a big part of Israel's history. They go down, they come up, they go down, they come up. It keeps happening. And so now Ahab is doing it again. And so um, it's probably been happening from all the previous kings, but Ahab is continuing in that. And there's something to be said for if Ahab's the kind of the worst in this long line of evil kings, if you know that something is wrong, but you keep on doing it, like that's what Ahab seems to be doing in the face of God. And you see this in verse 33, where it says that Ahab had done more to anger all the king, that more to anger God and more to provoke God than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What they had done was definitely not good because these altars, these Asherah poles were present. And yet, after generation after generation, aside from King Asa, they continue to go up, they continue to be built. And so Ahab is guilty of continuing on that. You almost get the sense that he knows this is something that the God of Israel is opposed to, but he doesn't care. And that's it. Now, when we think about the first two points when it comes to evilness, whether it's influence or wanting to get rid of ungodliness, um, as Daniel and I have been reading through the book of 1 Kings and trying to think about what does it look like for us as, you know, 2021 uh, Asian Americans here in this room, we've realized for a lot of us, we're trying to do our best to worship God and understand like who he is, but we get confused by all the influences of this world. And you kind of get the sense of that's what's going on as Ahab is establishing his reign. The first thing that he does is he marries Jezebel and things start to go from bad to worse. And so for many of us, maybe we're just trying to make sense of our lives and see what, like, what are my influences? What does truth look like in my life? But then the other thing we want to be on guard against, because we might say, like, I'm never going to be as evil as these two most evil characters in the Old Testament. But hopefully what this makes us ask ourselves is, are there things that are existing in our lives where we know they're wrong, and yet we just continue to do them anyways? And I think that's an important warning that we can learn from as these kings lead, people, lead God's people astray further and further, deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of sin throughout Israel's history. And so for us, we don't have the physical idols or the Asherah poles the way that God's people did because they were subject to King Ahab's rule. But I think we do have physical things and, and, and th physical items in this world that we worship, whether it's wealth or whether it's material things. And there are also psychological things that I think we worship as well, whether it's comfort or entertainment 
or just this idea of knowing something is right, but choosing to do the opposite. And you get the sense that's what's happening in the nation of Israel. And if God's people in chapter 15 were blessed when King Asa took down the idols to other gods, the question for us in the face of lots of evil in this world, lots of negative and harmful influences, but the presence of evil in our world, the question we want to ask ourselves is this. What idols exist in my life that I need to take down? Are they physical? Are my eyes always looking at a nice new house or a job promotion or a car or uh, as Black Friday has come and gone, literally everything on Amazon? Are we consumed with the things of this world, the way that people were throughout the Old Testament, being attracted to wealth, being attracted to riches? Or are they also immaterial and yet still powerful? Is there a mentality that, that exists where it's easy to forget about who God is and only focus on other things? At the start of the pandemic, because things were so strange, I remember thinking, I really want to hear like, what God is trying to say to us and teach us in this very different season. And something that I was encouraged to do by sermons that I would listen to or from other mentors of mine or a variety of sources was to read the Psalms as much as possible. And I would start every day like as I'm drinking my coffee to wake up by reading a psalm. But as the pandemic has continued on and on and on for a long time, I realized that slowly I could think, oh man, I've read a lot of psalms. I'm doing pretty well. This morning, you know, while I'm having my morning coffee, I'm just going to watch a YouTube video. And if you've been on YouTube during the pandemic, like me, you know how easy that rabbit hole can be to just sit there and continually watch video after video after video. And it makes me think, are there harmful things? And like, I don't know, I, I enjoy a lot of the things I watch on YouTube. And I've talked about this with you all before. But it's like, it does make me ask myself, are there things that I have my eyes set on? that I would be better served turning my eyes and my attention towards God. And like I said, we might not think we're anywhere close to as evil as Ahab or Jezebel. We might think, oh, I'm not leading God's people astray into this worship of all these foreign gods. Um, but if we see them as super evil figures of their time and some of the most infamous uh, characters in the Bible, then hopefully we should want to do the opposite of what we see them doing. And we can embrace the blessing that we have um, from what the Bible has to say to us. And so when we ask ourselves, what idols do we have in our lives? What stumbling blocks do we have in our lives that keep us from fully worshiping God? Maybe it's the material things, but I think many times it can also just be in our minds or things that we know are important for us, and yet we choose to do the opposite. And I think a big example of that that I've thought about like, how does this apply to us today? Because we don't have these, you know, we don't, it's not like we have a, like an altar right outside our church that we need to tear down or something. But I've thought about what are some things that God has like tried to like impart to my heart that I know I need to put into practice, but I choose not to. Whether it be, is there someone in my life I need to forgive that I'm having a hard time forgiving? But I know it's important for me to do but it's either I'm too hurt or I'm too angry or I choose to continue not to, even though I know that it's right. When I look at all the people that I see in this room, I see God's beautiful like sons and daughters. And that's like, I'm so encouraged by people who show up here week after week in a city and in a culture where not a lot of people go to church on Sundays. And you all should be super commended for that. And I hope that you feel encouraged from coming here. 
And yet the question we want to ask ourselves is, are there small ways that we start to drift away from having our attention and our hearts and our worship set on God and just choosing to do the opposite? And I know that's really challenging in the world that we live in. And that's why I'm so thankful for the wisdom that we find here in the book of, in the books of Kings. And so if we have this blessing of learning from God's word and learning from the evilness that we've seen in history and not wanting to repeat it, that brings us to our final point for this morning, which is just based off the final verse in chapter 16. And now, and that's where we want to believe in God's warnings that are there. Now, if we read this verse, we're probably lacking a lot of the context and we might not understand what's going on. And I had a, it was very fascinating to read about this and study about it in preparing for this message. Um, But one of the things that happens that Ahab lets happen under his rule is the city of Jericho is rebuilt. Now, I knew Jericho because of like growing up in church, singing the children's song, being fascinated, like as a kid who like loved like the the castle sets of Legos, like I you know even as a, like a seven or eight year old, I thought like how like how would the walls come down if like they weren't like you know physically like dragging them down? Did they really just walk around the city seven times and then all the walls came tumbling down? And it was really uh, an opportunity for God's people to see His power. And to trust in and trust in him, and it was an exercise of obedience for them in many ways, if you know the story. And so here, during this time uh, under King Ahab's rule, the city of Jericho gets rebuilt. And we might think, well, cities fall and rise all the time throughout history. What's the big deal? Um, it's very interesting what happens here as this character Hiel of Bethel rebuilds Jericho. And I don't know if you caught it when I was reading through it, but it said the cost was his youngest son. And that's a fascinating thing. That certainly, a uh, like if you think about the importance of family and children, I'm sure it would be a devastating thing. Um, but it's interesting to see how this comes about. And so it says, uh, and so if you go back to Joshua, after the city of Jericho, after the walls have come down, after the city has been defeated, after God's people have won this battle, Joshua makes this, uh, this oath at this time. You see this in Joshua 6, 26. It's very interesting. It says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up the gates. And so this happened generations before. Now Ahab is ruling and the city of Jericho is being rebuilt. And like as someone who like loves the Old Testament, like I had never caught this detail where I saw, wow, there was this curse that was put upon like the city of Jericho or the idea of rebuilding the city of Jericho. And then multiple generations later, in the face of all the evilness that God's people are experiencing, when the city is rebuilt, the man who rebuilds it loses his oldest son and his youngest son. It's fascinating. And what that shows is God's word spoken through Joshua as the leader of God's people, it ends up coming true generations later. Now, commentators are split on how this happened. Um, They're not sure exactly what the circumstances were, but there's speculation that perhaps uh, Hiel, the one who rebuilt the city, actually sacrificed one or both of his sons in a sacrifice in order to achieve the blessing of rebuilding the city. 
Now that's not confirmed. There are other commentators who said it was part of the just the retaking of the city, and maybe they died from like the battle that took place in order to be able to do this. It's not certain exactly what happened. But that the fact that there's even speculation that there would be someone of authority who would sacrifice their own children for the sake of rebuilding the city that had been cursed by like Joshua, like a leader of God's people many years later, it kind of shows how generations later, just this willingness to turn away from God, it's gotten this bad where, you know, I have a hard time believing that the people would not know the history of Jericho. If you remember in the Old Testament, like they didn't have Google, they didn't have the internet. All they had was oral tradition and things that had happened in history were held in much higher regard, I think, than we experience today. And so if you pass by Jericho, a lot of people, even if they're not the people of God, they would remember, oh, that's the city where all the walls came tumbling down. And then they would remember there's this curse where anyone who rebuilds it, their firstborn and their, and their youngest son is going to be the cost of it. And so like, I would, I would suspect that this kind of legend of this curse would be passed down for generation after generation, especially because of the type of culture, the oral tradition that existed in, God, in, in just the Old Testament times. And the fact that the author of Kings remembers this shows that there's knowledge of this curse. And I do wonder if it's an example of what's going on like under the reign of Ahab, where people say, I know something's wrong. Like, I know there's this curse, but you know what? That was generations ago. It's probably not going to come true. I don't have to take these words that seriously. Like, you know, or maybe like, or even worse, perhaps they thought like the goal of rebuilding the city is worth losing his two sons, which I kind of shudder at the thought of that. But it's kind of crazy how this truth that's spoken from Joshua comes true generations later. And this might sound kind of crazy to us, but I think the thing that we can learn from this as a warning against what evil looks like in our world is for us to say, do I value the truths that God has spoken through his word generations ago? Or do we look at God's word and we say, you know what, that was good wisdom for back then, but I don't know how much it applies to now. And it's easy for us to start to develop our own ideas of truth when it comes to evil in the world, when it comes to politics, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to all of the, kind of the hot like topic like conversations we have in our world where we could say that biblical wisdom was good back then, but does it still matter today? And yet at this point where the two sons were lost in the rebuilding of the city of Jericho, it had to matter. And I think the lesson for us as we think about evil is we can see God's word exists for us for a reason. We are still reading the book of Kings today that's being influenced by things that happened in the book of Joshua. This was thousands of years ago, but the, but the words of God came true over multiple, multiple, multiple generations. And so we want to really trust in God's word, even though it happened a long time ago. We're still here devoting ourselves to the importance of God's word. And that's something that can help us in the face of evil. And so I really think these are the encouragements that we see from this section as Ahab starts to take reign in the, in, in, as he begins this new chapter in Israel's history. And it's kind of a turning point in the book of Kings that we're going to get to that's exciting. And that's, that kind of gives us some context and some uh, perspective on what God is doing. 
We've seen three warnings that I think we can pull out of what's happening under the reign of Ahab. Be aware of the influences in our lives. Get rid of ungodliness. Trust in what God and God's word has said from time before because it's important. Those are the three um, really, I think, important uh, warnings that we get to see um, to help us think about how to process evil in the world. And yet, even though those, um, those encouragements are there for us, um, hopefully we can also have the perspective from the big picture of the Bible to see how God has a plan. And we see this in the book of 1 Kings, because as, as bad as the society looks in 1 Kings chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 17 starts a new chapter. And uh, it start, it, I'm going to read one verse for us to introduce us to our next character, but we're not going to go into uh, too much detail. We'll save that for the following week. But this is what introduces us to the famous prophet, the prophet of Elijah. And what we want to learn from the evil that we have seen in history so that we can choose uh, to do something different is really important. And what we have talked about throughout the book of 1 Kings is how because of the unfaithfulness of God's people, God has to discipline his people by being subject to these foreign kings. And it's a truth that's really uncomfortable for us, but I think it's important because I've seen how this is true in my own life, and I think many of us would say the same. Unfortunately for us as humans, sometimes things have to get worse for us to remember that God is faithful and that he's still present and that we can fix our attention and our worship on him. When things are good, it's easy for us to focus on the things that are right in front of us and forget about the importance of worshiping God. And that was true of God's people going back to Solomon. What a big deal to be in a place of peace and prosperity after being subject to foreign like nations for years and years and years, generations upon generations, and then to establish your own city, your own home, your own temple to worship God, and to be looked at as the envy of all society, having all the wealth and all the blessings of riches. That all has happened in the book of 1 Kings, and it's all come crumbling down. And it's a, it's, an import, it's a painful but an important reminder for God's people to fix their minds and their hearts upon him because of the generations that they have turned away. And it's not a happy truth, but I know I've seen this be true in my own life, that um, sometimes God uses our lowest points to be able to realize that we, need to be, that we need to be more diligent in our worship of him and remember that he's there and not to be focused on other things. And so at this low point, in Israel's history. Then we are introduced to the prophet Elijah. And just as a preview for what we're going to see at the start of uh, what the author has to tell us about Elijah, we see this in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so in the face of generations and generations of evilness, now a prophet of God has come to stand up to this evilness to the king. And we're going to see some of the most powerful stories of the Old Testament in the character of Elijah. And a lot of times people speak of Elijah as being like kind of a precursor to Jesus as our savior. In the face of evil, Elijah is the one source of light to come and lead God's people back away from the evil and into worship of God. Um, 
I used to talk about this in sermons all the time, but I used to find every possible sermon illustration um, from The Dark Knight, the second Batman movie, because I just love that movie so much. But there's this quote at the very end of the movie that always stuck with me, like the two times I watched it in theaters and like when I've seen it just on repeat. Um, but if you know the story, uh, it's too long to explain, but if you know the kind of the plot of, of just who the Batman is and why he exists to fight against the evil that exists in Gotham City, um, as things kind of take a turn for the worst with the presence of, of the Joker and all the evilness that's taking place, at the end of the second movie, there's this famous quote that says, the night is darkest right before the dawn, and I promise you the dawn is coming. When we watch the news in our world today, we see a lot of evil. We see a lot of darkness. And hopefully that is an invitation for us to put our hope in the one true light in our world, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, in a couple days, we're going to start to get the Christmas Advent videos that um, we've been working on as a whole church to encourage us during this Christmas season. And if the word Advent is meant to help us anticipate the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. As much as it would be good news for God's people to have the prophet Elijah to come in and interrupt this horrible, evil cycle in the history of Israel, it would be even that much more true at the coming of Jesus. And if we look at our world and we see how dark our world is, how twisted our world is, all the evil that still exists in our world today, hopefully we can look at these verses and be encouraged to be aware of our influences, to put away ungodliness, to listen to God's warnings and, and heed his voice of things that he says are important. Those are all important. But hopefully we can also see how God always has a plan. And the pandemic has felt really long and strange for us in many ways. But maybe the opportunity for us to draw closer to God and fix our minds and our hearts is something that we still have the blessing to do if we're not quote unquote back to normal as a society. And it's such a blessing for us, even in the strangeness and even in the challenges that we see, to know there is the one true light that was coming into the world, and that's Jesus Christ. It, the, the night being darkest right before the dawn and the dawn coming, it's a nice quote that comes from the dark night. But if you believe in God, if Jesus is your Savior, we know we have the one true light who can shed light on everything and give us a perspective, the proper perspective to understand what our world looks like. And hopefully that helps us uh, be aware of the ways that we can drift into the evil tendencies that we've seen in the Old Testament, but to be even more thankful for the fact that we have a Savior who came to give his life for ours and who will one day come back and make everything right and that we can look forward to that. And so as we get into the Christmas busyness, I hope that we would not forget the, one, the most important and wonderful gift, and that is Jesus, the one true light, the one who came into this world to be the hope in a place of darkness and evil. We know there's all kinds of evil in our world, but thank goodness we can have a relationship with God in the midst of it and know that there's hope. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, these passages that we have been reading over the past weeks and months, God, I know they are heavy. Um, God, I know it is not the most comfortable thing for us to be confronted with the question of whether or not we might be drifting into the evil influences that we see in this world. And God, I thank you that you have given us a way out. You have given us a different hope than just to follow the chaos that exists in our world. But Lord, that we can live life with you, 
moment by moment that we can trust in you even when you have told us to wait, when we don't see the purpose of what might be going on in our lives. And God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be the one who would interrupt the cycle of sin, the cycle of darkness, the cycle of evil, and to show us what the kingdom of God is really about. Lord, I pray for each one of us here. God, I know it's, it's hard not to be affected by many of the dark and evil things that happen in our world. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would be vigilant and standing strong and knowing the hope that we have in knowing Jesus. And so, Lord, God, I pray that we would ask the question, are there items of worship, are there altars in our lives that we need to put down to be able to fully worship you? And God, whether those are material things or whether those are uh, just the importance of forgiveness or asking ourselves what worshiping you day by day looks like, Lord, I pray that in your grace, you would be revealing these things to us so that we could put our hope in you. And Lord, that in a dark and evil world, that we would uh, just be able to live out the hope that we have of knowing you and knowing that we are loved by you. And so God, as we sing together on these last few songs, Lord, I pray that uh, this would be a way that we are reminded of the hope that we have and that that would carry us forward into all that you are leading us into this week. So we thank you for this time. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.